Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NoCo FM. Please don't go. I need you so I... Hello, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the news, humor, and cultural survival show by, for, and all about women and people of all genders who experience sexism. Today we're going to talk about what it takes to push past things in our lives that might feel insurmountable, and how sometimes when we do that, we find ourselves with the knowledge and skills to help others do the same. And my guest today has has these unique knowledge and skills. Uh, she's like, she's like the anti Liam Neeson. So instead of the knowledge and skills to hunt people down and kill them, you have the knowledge and skills to bring people out into the light and to love them in therapeutic ways until they feel like they can love themselves and cope with their lives. Would you say that's accurate? Um, yes, <laughs> I think I, I, yes, I'm going to go with, yeah, it might be awkward for you to disagree with me <laughs> right off the bat. I will never hunt anyone down and kill them. I promise. So, okay. Well, yeah. good. You heard yeah. it here. Yeah. So, uh, I think it probably would behoove me to actually introduce you. Uh, my guest today is one of the most unique thinkers and conversationalists I know. Her name is Urgita Parekh. And um, also known as Jita, my knee-jerk reaction uh, or my knee-jerk tendency when I'm talking to you will be to call you Jita. So she is a, a counselor, a mother, and a seeker. I would say I would describe you all three of those ways, and a really fabulous friend. So thanks so much for being here on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And she won't hunt you down and kill you. I promise. And Probably so not. you. Um, We've known each other for a long time. You now work as a therapist, which actually does not surprise me. It didn't surprise me at all when you went into that field because you are someone who, um, as I said, you're kind of a seeker. You're a seeker in a spiritual sense, but you've always been kind of a conversational genius in that you can get anyone to talk about themselves. And I think sometimes there are people who do that who are kind of malevolent, like they're trying to get people to reveal things about themselves in a way that is like almost to use it against them or to get them to reveal something for, you know, reasons that are not necessarily for their own benefit. But with you, it's not like that. Like you really are, have always come from a place of genuine curiosity. So tell me a little bit about your, where that curiosity comes from and, and, what do, what do those kinds of conversations fill for you? Okay, so first and foremost, I will say that my children would probably disagree with that <laughs> statement. They would probably <laughs> say she absolutely uses the things we say against us. That's messed up. Um, so, um, you know, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I think that I... Um, I think I the the way that I grew up, I felt like this very strong need to um, find a career path and find a way of being in the world that was in keeping with other people's expectations of me for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, I think what happened with that is uh, that as I progressed in my education, what I realized that was that the like the thing that I consistently felt like I did well was ask questions, not answer questions, shockingly, which, you know, in the school system didn't go over quite as well. They, de- they generally <laughs> would like some answers at some point. At some point. But um, but I think over time, I realized that that's what I really enjoyed doing was asking questions. And when I was younger, that was a little bit more, you know, the nature of the universe and stuff like that. Um, and then as I've gotten older, I've realized that I guess for me, the nature of the universe, figuring out, you know, the meaning of life and the nature of the universe really lies in my relationships with people. And so I think that that's been a big part of just who I've become over time. And a lot of it has just been accepting who I am and really coming to that place of recognizing that this is, 
naturally sort of my talent. I can vouch for the fact that it's your talent because I know that there have been times, even when we haven't talked in a long time, that if I'm going through some kind of crisis, I feel like the only person I want to talk to in the world is you. I mean, even before Mm. you were a therapist, I felt that way. I could, and you were always someone I could say, hi, I know we haven't spoken in a year and a half, but I have a problem. And what was great about that is that you never require, like I never also felt like I had to be like lead into it in any way to tell you what was going on with my life or ask you a bunch of questions. Like, how are the kids? How are things? Oh, by the way, Hey, just while we're on the phone, what do you think about this? I could just go straight to, I'm calling you because I have this problem. And you were like, tell me everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think that also comes from my tendency which most of my friends will say my terrible track record of staying in touch with people because I can't, I'm not so great with that piece of it. Um, But I do find that when I, even when I connect with people after many, many years, I feel like it's the connection really. It's like, that's what we go back to is that the genuineness of a connection and the authenticity of that part of it. And I think that that's, um, yeah, I think that that's what carries that part, that type of conversation. So quality over quantity, perhaps. Yes, yes. Let's go with that. I'm definitely, uh, I think, in that same boat. So you're also a very spiritual person and someone, um, your spirituality isn't necessarily traditional or something that is easily described where, it, you know, some folks you might say, oh, they're a Muslim or they're a Buddhist or they're a Methodist or whatever, uh, can you, how would you characterize your spiritual practice or beliefs? Um, I will say that my, I think my spiritual practice and beliefs are centered on the idea that um, growth is a way of life um, and that that's the only constant that I'm able to um, go back to time and again. And so I think I've utilized different forms of spirituality, different practices throughout my time. It'd be hard for me to characterize my spirituality in one. I, I think I just, I know that for myself, uh, in my life, when I am dealing with things that are beyond what I feel like I'm capable of emotionally that I need something to believe in um, mm-hmm. that is greater than me. And for, for, for me, that gives me solace. And I really, that's what I go back to spirituality for is more that feeling of solace when I am in the shits, really, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which happens quite often. But um, I just think that the, it's, um, I have to have that, that piece of me I think, you know, from the time that I was um, in college on, um, I've always had an altar in my room. I've always, like for me, the practice is more around reminding myself that even if things don't make sense to me, that they're, that it will be okay. It's really mm-hmm. about that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it is, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> well, it actually, that leads in perfectly to my next question, which is that, and this is something I have been thinking about a lot and really want to explore, use this, uh, use Feminist Hot Dog to explore with guests, is that you've pushed past a lot in your life, and you help now you help people who are pushing past the challenges in their own lives. So what do you tell your clients when they feel like they just can't move forward? If they're stuck or they're sad, where, I mean, you've talked in your previous answer about where you find strength when you're feeling depressed or disappointed. How does that come through in the ways that you talk to other people about their own struggles? You know, that's something um, that I've actually been working with a lot recently because, um, you know, I work primarily with teens. Mm -hmm. And the thing about our society is that we, um, children don't have a lot of power, um, in in all honesty. They have overall, you know, as they get to be teenagers, they have 
you know, increasing power, but they still don't have a lot of power or about in terms of the environments mm-hmm. and what that they're exposed to. And a lot of working with children and teens involves teaching coping skills and helping um, people cope. But I think as you get into your teen years, you start trying to make sense of what, but why? But why me? Why? You know, it's more of those existential questions mm-hmm. of like, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. Why should I have to deal with this and somebody else shouldn't have to deal with it? Or um, why do these things always happen to me? That sort of thing. Um, and I think it does beg that question. Um, I, I think a lot of times I will ask a student, you know, um, what do you believe in? What what is what is it that you go to? Where do you go when you're feeling at your lowest? And um, I think at the core, you know, it's teaching them to rely on themselves and rely on that internal connection to like <coughs> something greater than them. So when I say greater than them, I mean, for some people, that's like God or goddess. For some people, that is, um, you know, uh, the universe. <laughs> you, people have different beliefs. I don't think it's the content of those beliefs. I think it's more about having a connection and having a belief system um, around that connection. And for me, I think... Um, that's where I'm constantly working with students is like having a connection to themselves, having a connection to some sense of core identity, having a connection to family, having a connection to community. Like all of these connections have become, I think, harder and harder to come by in society Mm -hmm. Um, for whatever reason. You know, and I'm not saying like, I'm not like, oh, technology, bad. But like, I think sometimes what happens is that we reach for those connections in ways that, um, don't always allow us to make the connection does that make sense it does yeah I think I think that's that's very true and so you brought up identity in in your last answer and you were born in India Mm -hmm. and immigrated to Ohio yes rural Ohio rural Ohio and how old were you um, when you came to the United States I was four when I came to the U.S. okay so I'm sure that your identity has been ref- in rural Ohio was reflected to you in a, maybe a variety of ways, not all of which super pleasant or supportive. <laughs> I don't know why you would say that. <laughs> Sorry, Ohio. I may be making an assumption. <laughs> Ohio in the 70s. <laughs> in the eight, Yeah. Yeah. It was in the early 80s. But yeah, it, um, I think that Ohio, um, it is interesting because at that stage in my life, I didn't. I didn't have that perspective. Mm -hmm. So um, for me, it was really about um, acclimating and assimilating for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were definitely a lot of, there was a lot of confusion around me, I will say, by the folks in that small community in Ohio. They were like not sure what to make of a vegetarian girl that smelled, you know, like Indian spices all the time. Mm -hmm. Like there there was definitely some judgment. Um, but that being said, I mean, I also, you know, it was my first exposure to sort of running around in fields and going, you know, um, tromping through streams. And it was just a very interesting experience because I think I was always trying to, to fit in and very obviously not able to mm-hmm. sort of blend in the way that you know I may want I really wanted my name to be like Jennifer or you know like I wanted yeah. some of the cool names I, f- I feel like there were some certain names around that stage in the early 80s that were like super popular in my school it was being named Heather that was oh, like a yeah. really really big deal yeah. to be named Heather oh my gosh to have a name like Heather I would have loved that anyways I'm glad I I'm glad I'm Rajita now, but like I am, you know, I'm back glad then. you are too. <laughs> back then, you know. So great. Well, is there anything else in your life we haven't talked about? You are a mom and you have two awesome kids who I've just gotten to hang out with for the last few days and I'm yeah. like in love with your kids. They're so great. 
yeah, I kind of like them too. They're pretty, they're pretty, they're pretty amazing. You know what? Honestly, my kids, um, my kids inspire me to be a better person every day. And I think that that's, you know, going back to that conversation around spirituality and seeking, um, they're a big part of that, um, inspiration because I see them growing and changing Mm -hmm. and they inspire me to be a little bit more resilient in my own growth, you know? So anyways, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to talk about what made our feminist hearts sing lately. Ooh, yay. Ooh, yay. <laughs> Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Um, you go first. Okay. I have a couple things. Okay. So I'll, I'll start with the shorter one. So I recently started a new job and there's been lots of sort of quote unquote new job learning and anxiety and all of the, you know, not knowing where the supplies are and getting to know your coworkers and all that kind of thing. But one of the things that has been so incredible is realizing that in my new job, I get to do things like talk about the difference between reproductive rights and reproductive justice. And I get to talk about the differences between the way that feminists interpret different legislation and legal decisions and medical technologies. And I could not be nerding out harder on this stuff. I think I I think I sort of knew that that was part of it, but I don't think I realized to what degree that was going to be central to my work. So that's been a really fun thing to explore in my first few weeks on the job. Um, And as I have explained or talked about on this show a number of times, feminist hot dog is not a place where we necessarily debate the finer points of feminism. Although that of course comes up because there are a lot of things that we talk about that are complicated and don't have one answer that, you know, that's come up when we talked about like the Lorena Bobbitt case and the uh, Monica Lewinsky scandal, that those were both cases where feminists who were very outspoken in the media had really different views on the and how those incidents were reported on and the women involved and all that kind of stuff so uh, you know it isn't there isn't just one way that feminists think and I think it's really important to talk about that because it also that also helps challenge some of the resistance to feminism, I think that the idea is that if you call yourself a feminist, that that means that you have to sign on to this one way of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. And I just resist that so wholeheartedly. And so, um, having, I haven't really been in a position to study those kinds of nuances in a professional setting, maybe ever. So it's really exciting for me to get to do that. And I'm learning so much and it's really, um, Well, I may not be a seeker in the same way (laughs) that you are. I do love a good rabbit hole. And so uh, I really do. And I'm really getting to do that right now. Um, And that's important. There are distinctions. These are distinctions that matter and have real consequences for people's lives and for my life. So that feels good for me. How about you? What has made your feminist heart sing? Oh, my. Okay, so (laughs) um, I've been thinking about that a lot since um, we chatted about doing this podcast. And um, this sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier um, surrounding surrounding my spirituality, my seeking, whatever, however you want to call that. Um, so earlier, just about a week ago, I think, uh, uh, last Friday, I got to um, join my really, really good friend, um, Susan, uh, to celebrate her 60th birthday. Happy birthday, Susan. Happy birthday, Susan. And um, so Susan is somebody in my life who, um, she was my boss at my last job. And over the years, we've become, you know, closer and closer. Um, and I would say, you know, right now, she's one of the people that is sort of closest to my heart. Um, just And we spend a lot of time together. We go out, we have a blast. She's She's one of the most fun people for me to go out with. But um, the reason that celebrating her uh, made my feminist heart sing is because it made me realize how um, how lucky I am, honestly, how uh, 
fulfilled I feel by the various female relationships in my life and my friendships and specifically my mentorships. So um, Susan is, uh, like I said, is somebody that I used to work with and she was somebody who <laughs> who hired me when I first got out of grad school and there have been a number of ups and downs in my career since that time. Um, and throughout all of those ups and downs, she consistently sort of stayed with me and believed in my ability to progress in my career, believed in my ability, like believed in things like literally she would do these things when I started working for her where she'd be like, okay, you can handle this. Go ahead. And I'm like, um, I really can't. Like I have, <laughs> I don't know. I have if no you, business doing this. Yes. Like I don't know that you should trust me with all these children, but she's like, nope, I absolutely believe in you. Um, and I have had the privilege of having some amazing female mentors in my life. And I think like in our society, we really, that's something that we don't recognize enough is mentorship and how much, especially career wise, that that can be so impactful for women. Um, I have uh, um, in my current position right now, um, I have a woman who I work with. Her name's Chris Birch Rydell. She's a phenomenal counselor um, at the school I work at. And she um, she is such a strong voice, such a strong advocate, not only for students, but for other people in the field. Like she is one of those people that will consistently stand up and say, yes, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> yes, and that doesn't make sense. And we really have to um, look at what people are contributing to the workplace, look at you know how to support people and make sure that they feel like they're heard in, in, our, um, in our institution. And so these women, they inspire me like um, those relationships, they inspire me. But what really inspires me is that these are women that are a little bit older than I am mm -hmm. and who I, for me, are really like role models. They're people that I, I, not even, not just professionally, but personally, like they really, um, like I look up to them and I, the way that they live their lives with like integrity, with fun, like they're yeah. both super fun. They both um, are people that um, I just love spending time with. And when I'm around them, their energy gives me the energy to be a little bit stronger in myself. Mm -hmm. And so anyways, so I think, yeah, that's what made my feminist heart sing is like thinking about these amazing relationships and the fact that these people came into my life. Like I feel really privileged to have um, had the opportunity to have these relationships. You're making me think about the folks in my life who have done similar things for me. And someone recently left a review on iTunes, which thank you, by the way, to everyone who leaves reviews on iTunes. I love you. Uh, and so it was a very positive review. But one of the things that the reviewer said was they made the friendly suggestion to have more. I think they call them golden guests and specifically asked for guests who were in their 70s yeah. and wanting to hear from women who are in the later stages of their lives and lo and looking um looking back on life while at the same time leading great lives currently you know right. that, that we don't have to necessarily think of guests of a golden age um first of all we probably don't have to use euphemisms for their, <laughs> for their ages and also uh, like we don't necessarily always have to char characterize them as like, um, wise people looking back. They're also really badass people who have are, you know, are leading incredible current and forward thinking lives too. And learning from that for the record. Yeah, I, absolutely. I feel like the, you know, um, I think as I've gotten older, like my, um, my, circle um has expanded a, a little bit more in terms you know you you sort of grow up hanging out with people your age and then as you get older and you meet people professionally and you meet people in other um environments you really get more of a perspective on just life overall and mm -hmm. i like the i think that um it is i think we're you know and we talk about it, i'm like preaching to the choir but the whole 
thing about, you know, being youth obsessed in our society. I think it really makes it hard as a woman. I mean, even for me at this stage in my life, like I still am sitting here thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm in my forties. Like what now? What's left? You know, Mm -hmm. and that, that should not be the perspective. But it's definitely something that's handed down culturally mm-hmm. and it drives me crazy and it makes um, it so, so important for me to be around women who inspire me, who are doing life in a way that um, I aspire to as I get into, you know, my 50s and my 60s. And, you know, I think, yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Susan Wanling. Thank you, Chris Birch-Rydell. Thank you for all those women who uh, inspire me on a day-to-day basis. Well, you could not have led more perfectly into the next thing I was going to talk about it. So that's, um, that makes my feminist heart sing. That just that little bit of um, synchronicity because I'm going to talk, and this might seem a little superficial (laughs) after what you said, but I do think it's, um, it's relevant and so I'm going to talk about this page that I found on Instagram called Grombre. Mm-hmm. And it is described as a radical celebration of the natural phenomenon of gray hair. Oh. So I have, well, you know this because you can see me and you've known me forever. I have a lot of gray hair. And I have since I was in my 20s. And I dyed it for years and years and years and years. <laughs> Um, eventually, so my gray is, uh, grows, I think the way that many people's does, it has in big sort of chunks and and streaks. And so eventually those streaks became so, um, kind of saturated that like there was no point in dying it because I would dye it. And then literally the next day you could see there's like a big white patch. And so I would like use powders or mascara or whatever, you know, to try to like cover it up. And then, you know, eventually I was dying more and more and more and my hair was really damaged and it was expensive. And I finally was just like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm just not, I'm just not going to do it anymore. I had a hairdresser who was really, she was really great. She was really supportive and sort of helped ease that grow out process. But even when like I would go into her and be like, I can't take it. Just like, just cover it up. And she'd be like, I don't, I think you really just should give it a few more weeks. Like she was like my, almost like my therapist yeah, during that whole, the whole process. She was fantastic. Her name's um, Jen Powell and she's a genius. So um, anyway, enough about me. Um, all I, all that to say is I know, I wish I had had this when I was growing up right. my hair. Cause I, I know firsthand how hard it is. So, um, Basically, this Instagram profile is all pictures of women who are either, you know, have gray hair or are in the process of growing out their gray hair. So they're they're take they take pictures of like their it's called the line of demarcation. (laughs) (laughs) But they're like really cute pictures. So it's Instagram. Right. So nobody's showing their like shitty, rumpled, blurry photos with bedhead like these are like beautiful pictures but they're um so you submit these pictures of yourself usually with some kind of caption sort of talking about like whatever so the captions might um are sort of everything but from debriefing comments that they're getting like from family and friends as they're growing out their hair and it's amazing how like what people will say to Mm -hmm, you in that um uh, like unsupportive things that people will say and um uh, moments that they really wanted to go back to the bottle or back to the salon, ways that, that they noticed that they're treated differently. So it's, you know, part one part sort of support group for like those kinds of um, realities that reflect that youth obsession um, that you were mentioning right, earlier. Right. But also, um, I would say the majority of the comments are more about how much happier they are, how much more confident many of them. Some of the women have never dyed their hair and they just went gray naturally. But most, I would say, are growing out their gray or have grown out their gray right, right. and are reflecting on that. So and these pictures, like I said, are totally, totally beautiful. There was a um, they have what's called Woe Wednesday. Woe is an acronym. Um for words of encouragement and there's this really fabulous video on there right now um, from a woman who tells the story about how she was in a store and the um, cashier at the store asked her if she was eligible for the senior discounts and this one like if you see the video this woman is clearly 
in her 30s or maybe in her 40s right. but she you know <laughs> right. she has gray hair yeah um and her hair is very dark so the gray is really visible and she said you know in the video she was basically like you know in the past this would have I would have just run out of the store to the nearest Walgreens and bought a bottle of dye. Like this would have put me over the edge basically. (laughs) But that because she's so comfortable in her skin right now and because she loves the way she's really grown to love the way her hair looks that it didn't phase her at all. And she just said, no, thank you. I'm, I'm not eligible and completed her transaction and left. And it was like, not a big deal. Um, And so she said, for all the ladies out there who are growing out their hair, hang in there. You are just perfectly beautiful the way you are. And so that message is just repeated over and over and over again on this page. So having that come up, like, you know, I'm pretty selective about who I follow on Instagram. So it's not, um, I'm not, I don't, I don't have it set up in a way that like makes me feel bad about my body or my, you know, my home or my life necessarily. But whenever I see these pictures, I always stop and read them because I just, um, I just love them. So and, you know, again, um, and a friend recently who's growing out her hair and asked me about sort of how I overcame some of those um, fears and hesitations and moments of wanting to go back. Um, so I was able to send her to Grand Bray and I yeah. encourage anyone else um, to do it. And, you know, I'm also not someone who thinks it's if you want to dye your hair, dye your hair. Like right. I have a friend who's in her 50s. She's a redhead. She's always been a redhead. And she's like. I'm always going to have red hair. I'm going to be a hundred and have red hair. That is my identity. That is who I am. It's what I want to do. And that's great. But I also hear women say, well, in my field, um, it isn't considered professional. I have to look polished. So I can't have gray hair. And I'm like that. How fucked up is that? That it's like, that's a whole other level of misogyny that like having gray hair, like makes like, isn't professional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that, yeah. So, uh, you know, thumbs up to Grombre. And the last thing that I will say about that is um, I think there's kind of an interesting link between the way that we talk about giving up hair dye and the way that we talk about giving up substances, specifically alcohol. Huh. And so even what I said earlier, like running back to the bottle yeah, or um, yeah. the way that it's kind of socially acceptable and actually expected that you dye your hair, which is very similar to drinking. Like alcohol is like one of the only substances that people look at you weird if you don't consume it. Right. right. Um, And so you're weird if you don't drink, you're weird if you don't dye your hair, people comment, they make assumptions Mm -hmm. about you and it's hard. It kind of feels like you're sort of having to kind of always um, explain yourself. Um, And so there's actually another, a related page to Grombre called Sober Glow that is run by a woman who is sober from alcohol and also free of hair dye. And she's fabulous. And she deals with the intersections of both of those issues. Um, so um, I just wanted to mention that because I um, I know that that's an issue for many women as well. So check them out. Sober Glow and Grombre. They're great. Okay, we are going to move on to the advice portion of our show. Oh, yay. I know you love to give advice, Jita. <laughs> you've given Mostly me, unsolicited. You've advice. given me a lot of great advice over the years, and you're going to have the opportunity to do it again right now. Yay. So this portion of the show has always, um, sometimes we'll do a question from a reader, but sometimes I have questions and I want uh, and I need answers. I love your questions. So. Okay, good. So, um, so we're going to, uh, this time I'm going to ask you, what's your best advice? You're going to be, um, my dear feminist hot dog. Okay. You're going to answer my dear feminist hot dog questions. So fabulous. My question for you is because you have these unique set, cause you're the anti Liam Neeson. <laughs> um, so you're very, you're a very busy woman. You are a single mom. You have two kids, you work full time, you commute. But you also really find a way to, um, and oh, and you went back to school when your kids were really young too. Is that right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So how you also find it, find time to 
do all those things you were mentioning earlier um, in terms of being a seeker, being spiritual, finding ways to kind of constantly grow and nourish the parts of yourself that you recognize as needing growth. So how do you grow as a person when you are busy as hell? I I think I don't really have a choice Mm. in the matter. (laughs) Like I think what happens for me um, and I've dealt with it for a long time is that I am an emotional person. Um, the ups and downs and um, I've dealt with, you know, depression in my life. I've dealt with um, anxiety. I've dealt with a lot of stuff around my identity, um, specifically as it relates to my cultural background. And I think for me in dealing with those things, um, I, I struggled. I struggled a lot. And so I didn't have a choice in terms of finding a way through. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like, I mean, obviously I had a choice. I'm not saying that, but I guess I, what I'm saying is that like, it's something that comes up for me all the time is how do I make meaning of my world and the things around me and why am I doing what I'm doing and that's just I think that's just the way I'm sort of built and Mm -hmm. because of that um I think the way I make time for it you know I think a lot of people have really formal spiritual practices and really um are way more (laughs) wisdomy and um knowledgeable in this area than I I think what comes up for me again and again is that I find my spirituality and connection and I find it in connection with others and that's when I have my moments of insight and epiphany mm-hmm. is when um, and so I make a lot of time in my life for my connections with people that's so important to me and I learn so much from like I learn so much from my clients just you know their experiences um, like I said, the the women in my life, the mentors in my life, that um, I have a lot of close female friends that are just amazing people, um, and and male friends as well that are amazing people, and people inspire me every day. And so it, it begs the question: I wonder what made that person who they are. Like, how did they get to where they are? And um, what were their choices and what were the things that they didn't have a choice about that they sort of overcame and um I so for me that is my practice Mm -hmm. my practice is connecting with people it's making time for connections and I mean honestly I love connecting with like random strangers you know like going out and about Mm -hmm. and and meeting people you know meeting people at a bar or whatever (laughs) like but um I like hearing people's stories because they're fascinating and they teach me so much about myself um, and they allow me to reflect on who I am and um, that to me is spiritual and then I you know so you take that part of it I think everybody has to find a practice that for them you know it's like sort of um, that for them is a sustainable habit Mm -hmm. Um, and for some people I think formal practice is a sustainable sustainable habit for some people it's just about prioritizing the things that truly make their heart sing, yeah. you know? So I think that that for me is um, where I find my spirituality is is through people, through humanity. What I like about that answer is that you are, well, first of all, I don't think there is one answer that could work for everybody. And what you seem like you're doing is kind of constantly doing research on the ways that people have found to consciously or unconsciously adjust to the circumstances of their lives and that you're always learning about how different ways that people do that not necessarily because you should do it exactly the way that they're doing it but because now you have because of years of worth of these conversations a real sense of how adaptable people are and you have a, an enormous sort of catalog of examples to draw from and so that idea of kind of listening to hear like listening without expectation listening and giving people opportunities to share stories about things that are meaningful to them just for the just for the sake of hearing that story and not necessarily because you're going to get something from it and then go do something that would benefit you you know but um just the value and inherent in 
in the story or the connection. That's I never really yeah. thought about it that way before, but that that's very that makes a lot of sense. Well, I think yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um it what it is is having respect for that individual's experience. It, it, you know, it's that um intersection somewhere between empathy and compassion, mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, it's not that I don't like I, you know, listen to my morning, you know, um I do my audible Brene Brown and, you know, like Marianne Williamson. You know, I'm always like trying to put it in frameworks that I understand. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that there's just something to be said for um, that individual human experience. Um, And not from the perspective of separateness, but from the perspective of that shared humanity piece. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's where um, I really, it just, people amaze me people really really amaze me all the time i it blows me away the and the other thing is i think teachers appear i think that that your teachers you know sort of um when you need <laughs> and that's just again going back to my sort of belief system and spirituality like when you need certain lessons in your life that though they will they might not be helpful lessons. They might not be or not helpful. I, I they might not be pleasant lessons. Yeah. Um, but typically they will be helpful lessons. So I think that that, you know, sometimes it's just about trusting in the process, right? That was the biggest thing I learned from grad school because I think I went in being like, I'm not really sure about this whole therapy mm-hmm. thing. Like, yeah, I want to be a therapist, but like I don't understand. And um you know, everybody would be like, trust the process. And I'm like, okay, y'all are hippies. Like, stop. <laughs> stop telling me to try. I don't trust any process. But by the end of it, I really was a big believer in trusting the process. So, Well, thank you very much. That was an awesome answer. I appreciate you. Are we ready to talk about the Hot Dog Hall of Fame? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay, well. I'm going to go first and my inductee into the hot dog hall of fame is a woman named Loretta Ross and Loretta Ross is an African-American feminist scholar, author, and activist who has worked in the areas of um, sexual assault and domestic violence, crisis response and prevention, women's health, reproductive justice, and anti-hate work. She focuses on the experiences of black and indigenous and women of color, but is also very focused on fostering connections within and across movements and factions of movements. And that's, it was in that context that I first encountered her and kind of fell in love with her work. And then I sort I learned more about the, her legacy and have just been kind of blown away. So just to warn listeners, there is, um, there's some, material in her story that might might be hard to hear because she is a true example of someone who has survived some really harrowing experiences including rape and incest and sterilization abuse and again um i i don't want to fetishize people who have overcome their hardships because i think that there are a lot of people who um who struggle on a day-to-day basis with their hardships Mm -hmm. and that you know they're hard dealing with their hardships is kind of like their job and sometimes they're better at it than others and so again I don't I want to be wary of holding up like heroes who overcame the odds and um (laughs) at the expense of people who are have been through hard things and then just you know remain just folks who are living their lives but I do think that um she is truly an example of someone who was able to uh, place her experiences within the larger social context in w- within which they happened and then has used her gifts to help change that context in many, many ways that I think are pretty remarkable. So she talks really openly about her experiences and how they influenced her as a woman, as an activist, and as an intellectual. And I had the opportunity to hear her speak several months ago and I just haven't, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. So she, as I said, experienced some really terrible abuse and actually had had a, a son as a result of a sexual assault by a distant family member um, that was per- perpetrated against her. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the 70s, she was actually part of a successful lawsuit. Again, are you familiar with Dalcon Shield? 
Dalcon Shield was a brand of IUD that was oh, yeah. um, okay. really terribly problematic in the 70s, caused terrible harm to many, many women, in particular, many poor women of color. And she was the first woman of color to win uh, such a lawsuit against that company. So um, wow. there's an incredible interview in Rewire about her experience with Delcon Shield and her subsequent forced sterilization. And I highly recommend that folks read it. It is um, it is a devastating, but also um, incredibly powerful interview. So Ross was always very, before all that happened, she had um, even as a child been very, very successful academically. She went to college when she was 15. Wow. Um, yeah, but she ended up losing her scholarship um, at Radcliffe when she gave birth to her son because she was originally going to place him for adoption and then ultimately decided to keep him and parent him. Um, she went to Howard and eventually graduated from Agnes Scott College and went on to get her PhD from Emory. And she's now a visiting professor who drops knowledge all over the country. Um, she has this kind of cool nomadic visiting scholar life that I right. just um, I, that I just love. And scholarship is definitely central to her identity and to her legacy. Um, when she was a young activist, she was very engaged in black power and Marxist ideology. She traveled to South Africa as part of the anti-apartheid movement. Um, in 1980, her close friend and political ally, Yolanda Ward, was murdered in D.C., which that's a whole separate story that actually is is very devastating and fascinating. And I encourage folks to read about Yolanda Ward. Um, but... Uh, Loretta Scott describes Ward's murder as a political assassination, that it was a, a ro like ostensibly a robbery, but she truly thinks that it was in fact state sanctioned. Um, and that was a turning point for her as an activist. She um, ran a rape crisis center in DC was, that was the first in the country to specialize in serving women of color. She organized conferences about how to unify women and activists across issues in support of ending violence against women. She was one of the first African-American women to coin the term reproductive justice. So this is also part of the reason I wanted to talk about her uh, today was just because I have been thinking a lot um, because of my job about um, the value of the reproductive justice framework and, and Loretta Ross's big part of um, helping introduce that framework more broadly and nationally. She co-founded an organization called Sister Song, which aims to build an effective network between individuals in advocating improvements with, within institutional policies that impact the reproductive lives of marginalized communities. And she was one of their national coordinators for many, many, many years um, up until 2012. She's also, as if that were not enough, <laughs> she has also worked with individuals who were formerly in hate groups to help them transition out of the, out of hate groups, um, back into, I guess, non, non-hating society. Um, if, I mean, wow. if there is such a thing, but none, you know, the part of society that isn't actively involved in a hate group, but just re regular old white supremacist society <laughs> instead, of, <laughs> instead of identifying as white supremacists. I'm not sure how to characterize that exactly, but I think, I mean, that's, that's incredibly deep and powerful work to do as a black woman to help yeah, people who, yeah. um, who's about compassion, right? Right. Yeah. Whose whole identity was wrapped up in hating you for yeah. so, so many years. Um, she's written many books on reproductive justice and she's included in many um, anthologies, been on TV, won multiple awards, but her most recent book and how I encountered her is called calling in the call, the calling out culture, detoxing our movement. So I saw her um, speak at a conference and she was so engaging in the audience. She was t basically talking about how she's using her decades of experience in the movement to help the sort of current social justice um, vanguard heal from the inside so that it can move forward in ways that, you know, that we're that hold e hold each other accountable, but also actually have a have a chance of building connections between people so that the movement can remain cohesive and forward thinking right okay. so she talks a lot about how um 
the internet in particular has been um, a place where call out culture has become kind of the norm mm-hmm. and where it is much easier to call people out online than it is in person. And so then we have thing, you know, we have this sort of cancel culture, like so-and-so is canceled or they said this one thing wrong mm-hmm. or they did something wrong 20 years ago or they did something wrong five years ago. And so like they're out we, right. we don't listen to them. We don't talk about them. Mm-hmm. They're, they cease their like persona non grata. Um, and she's really focused on like, okay, if someone is harming you, it's, a, it's fine to call them out. If mm-hmm. somebody is using their platform in a hateful way, of course, call them out. Like she's not suggest, she's not tone policing. She's not suggesting right. that people should never be called out. Right. But she's also saying that within social movements, if we cannot find the grace to call each other in, like point out the ways that someone may be being harmful, but in a way that allows both parties to move forward and remain committed to the work that that, um, and that it's not reasonable to expect people to do the emotional labor for you. But if somebody says to you, Hey, what you said is not okay. Then it's on you to listen to them thank them for that feedback and then go, go do that labor yourself so that you can stay involved in the movement and everybody move forward. So that's, that's, um, accountability, both on the part of the person giving the feedback, but also on the part of the person receiving the feedback, which dovetails really nicely with the me and white supremacy workbook, um, by Layla Saad, which we've talked about on the show and also, um, with Robin D'Angelo's work on white fragility. So I really love, it's like, these things all kind of dovetail together in terms of how can we hold each other accountable, but also um, hold ourselves accountable for receiving that feedback in ways that allow for um, stronger connections that allow us to all move forward together. So um, thank you, Loretta Ross, for all you have done for the women's movement. You are an inspiration. um, And I'm truly honored to have had the opportunity to encounter you in person. I can't wait to read your new book and welcome to the hot dog hall of fame. Wow. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I, um, that whole call out piece, I think that it, um, especially in the context of the internet is Mm. really, really interesting because I come across it a lot in my work day to day with, with teens because Mm -hmm. teens are in that process of trying to figure out what their views are and they will offer something like on a board and will get shut down quickly and they will crumple. They will crumple because that's their entire community. That's their entire identity. So I've had a few conversations with um, teens around um, gender identity and, um, you know, sort of um, exploring those parts of themselves. And when they get shut down, it completely, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's devastating for them because they are, because that online space is their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think it, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, that idea of, um, calling, you know, calling in versus calling out. I'm in love with it. And the people at, um, at the conference were also, I think I mentioned this to you that she had an hour to speak and at, it was at the end of the day and people were so entranced by her yeah. and her energy and the, the how she sort of made them feel. Right. Um, and they obviously really needed to talk about this. Right. And so she at the end was like, well, if y'all want to just stay, like I'll stay. And people stayed for an, a full hour after the the session formally formally ended to learn from her and she's just that kind of person she's someone with just this incredible going back to that the mentorship um comment that you had earlier that she is someone that do not sleep on loretta ross she has an incredible um amount of knowledge to drop and and for people who've studied feminist theory, they already know her because she's like a you know big right. in that um, in that scholarship. But if you if you don't, and I didn't, yeah, yeah. then um, it's she's absolutely one to to read for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And you also are talking about an author, is that right? I am. I am, and she's not necessarily a lesser known feminist. Um, but the reason she came up for me, so. 
Um, recently, <laughs> my son, who is nine, um, he is a very vociferous reader. Mm-hmm. And so I'm constantly trying to keep him in gauged in books, um, primarily because it keeps him occupied and keeps him from asking me questions that I don't have the answers to. So so (laughs) first of all, you just use the word vociferous. So I'm um, imagining that he might have gotten a little of of his word love from you. (laughs) And he likes to ask questions. Yeah, I know. Shocking. Shocking. I don't know. Anyways. um, So he, you know, he powered through the whole Harry Potter series and I was like, okay, well, what what next? Um, and so I introduced him to the Ursula Le Guin Earthsea Trilogy. Um, and that, okay, so Ursula Le Guin, I'm not like in any way, shape or form an authority on science fiction or fantasy or anything like that. I have certain books and um, series that I enjoy and um, have enjoyed in my past. Um, I don't claim any sort of scholarship or knowledge in this area. I like how many disclaimers we do on this show. We're like, <laughs> I don't really know anything about this, but I'm just, I'm going to start I'm talking about it right there. now. Right, right, right. So yeah, so she's, um, she is my nominee for the Feminist Hot Dog Hall of Fame. Um, so I originally um, came across her work because I took this, you know, gender and sexuality class in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the books that was assigned at the time was Left Hand of Darkness, which is a book that she wrote um, like in 60 something. Um, and honestly, at that time, I wasn't really that into that particular book. There was another um, author in that class, also uh, uh female science fiction or like dystopian science fiction type of writer um or at least this her book was um woman on the edge of time and that's by marge piercy ah. so i was obsessed with that book and so i sort of like skimmed through left hand of darkness and was like yeah whatever okay um but both of those books are about questioning our concepts around gender mm-hmm. and gender identity and and um you know again they were Ursula Le Guin wrote that <laughs> Left Hand of Darkness, I think, came out like in the 60s and in the late 60s, but definitely ahead of all of our current conversations around gender identity and yeah. gender fluidity and things like that. Um, and that's something that I am, um, it's an area that I'm very interested in because I learned so much about it um, in terms of the students I work with. And I'm. it's definitely an area of growth and an area of um, just, I'm really trying my best to really um, look at my own stuff around issues of gender identity. So <clears throat> anyway, so it's just a topic I'm, I'm fascinated by. Um, and so that being said, I never really read in college, for f- like read for fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, I read in college, kind of. I graduated with a 1.8, so I didn't read <laughs> that much in college. <laughs> I don't know why they let me graduate. But anyways, um, so when I when I came out of college, I was like, you know, it's been a long time since like I have read anything for fun. So I asked my good friend Mandy, um, who is also into this genre of books, for some suggestions, and she suggested the Earthsea trilogy, which is um, which was originally written for young adults. But I read the books, and just the themes in the books—they're really complex. Like I'm kind of shocked that my son. <laughs> is reading them and is able to grasp some of the concepts in in the books. But um, they're really complex um, themes and just really the style of writing, just everything about it. It helped me fall back in love with reading for fun. Mm -hmm. Um, So, okay, so a little bit about Ursula Le Guin, right? She was um, born in 1929. She actually died last year, um, in January of last year. Um, She's, her writing... um, was mainly in the genres of science fiction and fantasy, um, which we all know has been heavily male-dominated throughout history. Um, she started publishing in the 1960s, and in the late 60s, her work started gaining recognition, um, specifically for the two books that I mentioned um, before. So Left Hand of Darkness and then uh, Wizard of Earthsea, which is the first in the Earthsea trilogy. Um, she was the first woman to win both the Hugo and Nebula Awards. Um, and I believe she was the first woman um, to win, uh, like, the Science Fiction Fantasy Writer Guild of America, like, the mm. Master of um, Science Fiction. I think it's, like, a lifetime type of award. So she was the first woman to win that. But really, I think it's, you know, 
um, science fiction and fantasy have been heavily male-dominated fields. And when you get the perspective of female writers, it's just such a different perspective. Whether their um, protagonists are male or female, it's just a different way of writing. It's a different way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all know that. I mean, we know that you know sometimes... A diversity of voices in writing is kind of important. What? <laughs> you heard <laughs> it here first. Um, but I really, I think for me, what's powerful about this is that I can expose my son to that. Yeah. You know, at, so a, cool. at a young age, it's something I can share with him and um, and that he can get that perspective of um, that is different than what um, I got when I was his age. I certainly was not exposed again to a lot of this writing until I was much older so um yeah so I'm I Ursula Le Guin she's pretty amazing I love it thank you so much well Gita I have loved having you on the show thank you for doing this I really appreciate it yeah thank you for having me it's been fun and thank you all for listening don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and sign up for the Feminist Hot Dog newsletter at feministhotdog.com so you can stay up on all the latest hot dog news. And if you have a question, you can send it to hello at feministhotdog.com. Our music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music, and audio engineering is by Square Lightning Design. Thanks again for listening. And as always, love yourself, love your buns. Goodbye. Goodbye. This has been a production of NOCO FM.